0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Emma Heath and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation Okay, so welcome everybody to today's podcast, um, the first Yorkshire CIO series. Really, really excited to get this um, kicked off. And again, thank you uh, to all of you for giving up your time. I really appreciate it. Um, Just a quick introduction. I know that you all know me already, but I'm Emma and I work on the NHS public sector team at Evolution Recruitment. We are a CCS framework supplier who deliver interim digital and tech talent into the NHS Our purpose is that we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. There are three key parts to that. Firstly, our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. Second to that, what we do is collaborate with NHS organisations, helping them build high-performing digital teams. And finally, how we do that is through curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industry best practice, such as events like this podcast tonight. So that is me. Um, I'm just going to go around to Andy first because you're first on my screen. So if you could just introduce yourself.
1: Yeah, hello there. I'm Andy Williams. I'm the uh, interim CDIO for. Humber North Yorkshire uh, ICS, uh, also at the moment for York and Scarborough Teaching Hospitals Trust and for Harrigan District Teaching Hospitals Trust.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, Andy. Chris, round to you next.
2: Hi, um, I'm Chris Reynolds. I'm the Chief Information Officer of the Tees, Esk and Weir Valley NHS Foundation Trust. We provide mental health services across, guess what, Tees, Esk and Weir Valley.
0: Thank you, Chris. Um, Simon, round to you next.
3: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Simon I'm the Chief Information Officer for Yorkshire Ambulance Service.
0: Thank you very much, Simon. And Lee, last but not least.
3: Thanks, Emma. So, yeah, I'm Lee Rickles
4: and the Chief Information Officer at Humber Teaching NHS Foundation Trust. Multi-specialist provider, we do mental health, community, primary care, um, basically just everything but acute. Uh, I'm also the Programme Director for the Yorkshire Humber Care Record as well.
0: Thank you very much, everybody. Um, So we're going to just dive straight into the questions, I think. Um, Thank you again for sending them over. Really great um, set of questions. We've got seven in total. We'll try our best to get through all of them, um, but we'll we'll, we'll do our best. So first question we're going to kick things off with is um, what strategies, techniques and methods have you used to increase the diversity in your teams? And what benefits have you seen from this? So, Andy, I'm going to come round to you first for your thoughts on this one.
1: Yeah, thank you, uh, Emma. And uh, it's, it's a great question, isn't it? You know, the issue of, of diversity in our teams is is, is huge, uh, and, and we'd like to uh, improve that diversity wherever we possibly can. Um, and for me, it, it's about making sure that that's done organically, uh, and in a way that that makes sense rather than a forced way. Um, but uh, you know, by by keeping opportunities open, by uh, making uh, advertising channels uh, through recruitment. Uh, you know, open and fair and honest uh, to to encourage uh, anyone uh, with the right skills and abilities to you know apply for roles uh, and to promote from within wherever possible as as well. So uh, you know, as 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 a uh, an interim, uh, you know, I still have a, a huge responsibility to to develop the teams that I'm working with for however however long I'm working with them, and uh, you know, it, it's it's about uh, trying to identify the talent. And encourage that talent to grow uh, within the organisations as as much as possible. Uh, I think we've we've got a long way to go in terms of opening up our channels, uh, in terms of you know spreading the reach uh, to to areas where uh, you know currently people may not experience uh, or or have the opportunity to uh, you know reach into uh, the NHS. Certainly in terms of the opportunities that are available, so you know wider promotion, wider advertising. Uh, using a, a, a fuller spread of uh, channels. Hopefully we'll see that organically grow uh, into a, uh, a much more diverse workforce.
0: Thank you very much, Andy. Um, Chris, we'll come round to you next on this one. So
2: um, I think there's, there's several bits to this on there? So I think As a kind of, as a leader within this space or a manager, um, I think there's a lot about your informal networks and encouraging people um, informally, if you like, reaching out to people who you know who are talented and making sure that they're thinking of these types of roles, whatever type of roles it may be that are in their their, their remit. Um, I think there's something about trying to make sure that People recognise their skills and abilities, Um, so I've often found with colleagues who are in more junior roles, who are talented and working hard, that they sometimes don't think of themselves because they look at it and go, so, you know, you're a middle aged white man, I've got nothing to do with you, Um, which is, you know, fair enough, um, but also they're not seeing their own talents, I suppose, through that lens. and so you know, I do, I've done things in the past where you know you, you nominate people for national awards, um, Ella Ward, Dale, Brown, or two of my successes who, who, who got national awards. And it's not really the national award bit; it's the nomination. You're doing good work. Why don't you put yourself forward? Conversation that's really important, I think. Um, and then it's just using, I guess, trying to create a network that is not like the old boys club is an informal network yeah um that is getting people to think of those themselves in that space and not relying for instance i guess on you know i don't know um our old networks (laughs) and if you like i mean i've got a network of people who look like me but i don't really want that network to be supporting us in the future so it's always uh, i think is a a thing for for us as digital leaders to get into and, and really spot talent and nurture it
0: Thank you very much chris simon round to you
3: yeah i would agree with both andy and chris i think the the um i mean the, it's difficult within the nhs sometimes because you know we're we're forced and i use those words in inverted commas to use nhs jobs uh primarily to look for for staff until nhs jobs uh, proves um that we can't actually recruit the people that we want and not a lot of people necessarily understand that from a technical point of view that NHS jobs also includes a lot of the uh, technical resource that we want. Um, and you know we we've recently used a graduate um, trainee scheme from NHS England that's been very successful um, for us uh, bringing in people from a, a quite a diverse background to to be honest with you. and I think I think as we as we start to expand and I know some of the other questions are probably going to talk about, know how do we get inclusivity within uh, a more diverse um um population um the ability to recruit people from um from from populations that we wouldn't necessarily normally recruit from is going to be essential to us to be able to reach out to those individuals when we start to look at how do we do digital inclusion to to those people um and you know we have to open up all those informal channels. We have to use the Instagrams. We have to use the things that we as older people don't necessarily use today to be able to reach out to those individuals at the younger generation that actually we're trying to encourage to come into the workforce.
0: Thank you, Simon. And then Lee, round to you.
3: Yeah thanks Emma
4: and, and uh,
0: not not that I should
4: reflect on here but we are, we have got four white male and stale people here so we probably aren't. You
3: speak for yourself Lee
4: <laughs> but uh, from my experience I really aren't the expert on this. You know I am in that privileged group of I'm a senior manager white in the NHS. Most of my hints and techniques come from talking to my other peers. We in our clinical teams we have a a, a wider diversity from an ethnicity and an experience point of view and and there's also the 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 other reflection on <clears throat> um the people's um backgrounds socioeconomic values etc etc so you know Simon makes a really good point how do we engage with the younger workforce how do we get people in but it's also as important to not forget there is an older workforce uh, and we shouldn't ignore that one as well you know then people that are uh, uh, especially female, it can be male, because apparently men can take maternity leave and stuff like that now. This shows you how old they am and I'm probably not PC. But it, it's thinking outside the box. It's not trying to try and get people to fit into your view of the world. It's probably my take-home. It's trying to look at that wider and would that person be a good check or balance? Would they be able to create knowledge and experience we don't have in the team to create challenge? Because what we want is that discussion and challenging conversation, and understanding. That if I really want to understand how I don't know, in in Hull we've got quite a big Eastern European population. I need Eastern Europeans to understand how they would operate potentially, or, or you know, or you know, um, so that type of thing. So a lot of mine is, is never down to me. It's trying to uh, engage with others that are far more knowledgeable and experienced, and 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 have been far more impacted by. That particular, um, um, you know, that, that issue around diversity and, and privilege or not privilege.
0: Thank you very much, Lee. Um, some really good points there, everybody. I think that I find personally diversity to be quite an interesting topic, but I do think it could be a whole podcast, separate topic in itself. Um, so, no, thank you, everybody. Um, I think the next question follows on kind of really nicely from this. Um, So question number two is what can we do to improve the accessibility of our digital solutions for our citizens and colleagues to tackle digital poverty and increase inclusion? So Chris, I'm going to come round to you first for your thoughts on this one.
2: Okay, so um, we've got and I suppose it's it's lucky when you're a mental health provider because a lot of the work that you do is in reaching into communities. um, you're not a hospital driven kind of uh, traditional model of consultant low care. Um, so a lot of what you're doing within your organisation is already doing some of this stuff. So, you know, our recovery college, I'm sure Lee's got a recovery college, helping people back into work. Um, that's that's the kind of things that we need to do as an anchor organisation. Um, I think we also have a responsibility as an employer, because again, if we think about the last question um, about diversity, how are we encouraging our local populations to come to us with their digital skills and how are we sponsoring their development um, going beyond that actually and kind of in reaching into those communities to try and understand why we don't have this particular ethnic group or a particular um, demographic represented in cyber um, I mean, to be fair, there's no one represented inside because there's like hen's teeth. So, you know, how can we encourage those communities to get involved and how can they see themselves as those next um, cyber experts? So for me, it's really about inclusion and diverse and digital poverty. It's about understanding where people are, putting support mechanisms in place to allow people to do that, engaging with them radically, getting close to them, getting close to those communities, communities and then understanding what are the blockers. So usually it's a combination of skills, devices, access. Um, And if we can provide those three things as an ICS, perhaps not just as a mental health organisation, but if we can coordinate it about across our our footprint, then then we'll be doing a good job. We did a piece of work in black country where we um, acted as the mental health provider, who was the only um, because of the geography we were the only one who had the whole geography under our remit, so we acted as a, the point where you could go and get a computer if that's what you needed to get because it was better than having 1500 discussions with several different GP practices because that would be technically hard um so it's that kind of stuff that we need to do in order to in reach into our communities but I do think it's an in reach it's not a outreach it's it's trying to get close to them and doing all that good good stuff in terms of our strategies and all those kind of things um and f- fundamentally pressing some flesh at the end of the day
0: thank you very much chris um simon we'll come round to you next
3: i would agree with chris in that it, it is a mix of in reach and outreach and i think that the challenge that we have with uh, digital poverty and um and increasing inclusion i i think sometimes we we tend to think that digital is the answer to everything uh, and it clearly isn't and I use the example of my dad who sadly passed away a couple of years ago who was 89 years old and had trouble working his remote control for his TV as an example so it's not necessarily about an individual it's also about the the people who care for those individuals and who are their advocates as well and making it as easy and simple as possible for for the, a, a, a caring community for an individual to be able to access the appropriate health care and um, access to um, NHS outpatients as an example um, anything at all like that is going to be massively important and we shouldn't just assume that um, just because we have a digital solution that it's the only game in town uh, because it clearly isn't um same sort of thing with children as well uh, i think you know when when we start to look at um you know the the, the care of children the care of um, and, and the care of others um, that are you know, it, it, it's it's difficult. Um, they say we're digital leaders, and yet half the time, for me in particular, you know, it's we're a very reactive organisation in in the in nine 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 and one one one. And you know, for us, how, how do we manage that? Well, it's a bit more difficult than than you'd think. To be honest with you, we you know we we still got you know ring up basically. Uh, in fact, if you can't get through to na- uh, that to a GP, ring one one one. Um, and a lot of people are doing that these days. Um, a lot of people have got mobile phones. A lot of people haven't got mobile phones. Um, but as I say, I think digital inclusion and digital poverty are not something that is um, that is easily reconcilable uh, given the, the the age of the population that we're dealing with.
0: Thank you, Simon. And Lee, round to you.
3: Yeah, thanks,
4: Simon. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question and I think, unfortunately, uh, because of preconceived ideas that digital can solve everything, which has been already suggested, it it's, it, it isn't the policy that potentially central government may think. Um, I think the key bit here around the accessibility is the experience. So it's not around using the technology. It's, it's not around um, putting a new uh, mobile devices. Actually, we do understand the experience that them individuals will have that personalised care on what's the right methods to get the best outcome. So children are always or younger people are always potentially seen as very digitally connected. I know full well from research we've carried out with our uh young people. We've got a very vibrant young people group uh, group that, that works with the trust they really want to talk to them practitioners. They don't want to do it virtually. They don't want to use digital tech. That's what they do with their friends. (laughs) What they want to do is actually talk to somebody. So again, what I would use there is the example of, the key bit around solving the digital inclusion is to understand when digital inclusion is a problem or not without creating the barrier in the first place. And the risk we stand on this is and we might be creating a barrier that doesn't need to be in place, and and that probably stands with our staff as well. We we love to automate techie stuff and collect lots of data of our staff. The reality is, does that help on outcomes? Question mark. Only time will tell. Uh, but it's very frustrating for our clinical staff that spend more time doing that type of thing. So I, I would say the focus probably needs to be more experience, more understanding of the needs, and then the right tools. Uh, and and that that could be digital. To be honest, it could be the neighbour just knocking on the door because you just need the neighbour as part of one of the health navigator initiatives to just make sure that little Millie's OK. Rather than having a super IoT solution that's cost an arm and a leg, but you still can't have a conversation with the IoT device, but you can have a conversation with your neighbour.
0: So Thank you, Lee. And then Andy, on to you.
1: Yeah, thank you and, and yeah, going last on any question you, you're left wondering well what, what else is there to say just <laughs> uh, you know completely agree with the colleagues I think I think the element that that, that you know I, I'm always interested in around in inclusion and, and digital poverty is, is the education piece uh, and just making sure that um yeah we, we do help people understand you know what it is that is out there to use and and, and educate them in terms of how to use it uh, I think we we have a tendency to to overcomplicate our language around uh, around digital solutions and also our designs. So, you know, perhaps slightly over-engineered or too many features or you know, platforms are a little bit tricky to use and and you know, as, as Simon said, you know, we've, some of the aging population uh, may may struggle with with a lot of that uh, and some will be silver surfers. Uh, and we'll be absolutely au okay and 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 get to grips with it really, really easily. But you know, it, it's about perhaps providing that guidance and support mechanisms, um, and also having a clear need. We saw we saw through the pandemic that you know there were some specific digital tools um, that were really well used because they had a very focused and clear need, and therefore people knew what they were for. We knew why it was going to help, and 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 we used them. And so it's sort of building on that momentum, really, that 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 broke down some of the the barriers. Um, as as long as people have got access, so they've got you know Wi-Fi coverage or broadband, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of work going going on along across local authorities and uh, you know to to widen the the public uh, Wi-Fi access, you know, even along promenades and in country spaces to to try and improve those hard to reach reach areas but i think it's, it's about making sure we 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 have some tangible changes and actions uh, and that that we concentrate on bringing people with us educating them on on what's available and and supporting them on on how to use it
0: thank you very much andy for rounding that one off um again some really good points Um, So moving on to question three, which I think is quite an interesting one. Um, So question three is, how does a CIO balance the requirements to keep the basics working and creating an environment of innovation and change? So Simon, I'm going to come round to you first on this one.
3: Well, that is a $64 million question, isn't it? Um, I mean, certainly for Yaz, we work in a in a highly resilient environment um, with and the, with a small but um, key component of suppliers, the likes of BT and Vodafone and Virgin Media, as an example. So um, we are nothing. We 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 cannot exist without our technology stack. So uh, whether that's um, whether that's the broadband connectivity between our different operational sites um, or the telephony infrastructure uh, coming in. Or even the voice communications and and the mobile communications out to our ambulances, as an example. So, we spend um, we spend a very large amount of time and money on making sure that all of our equipment is uh, up to date, is cyber secure. Uh, we we replace and replenish on a very regular basis. Um, which, when I worked as a trust uh, CIO, I was exceptionally jealous of, I must admit. But you know, it, it it is you know we 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 do not exist without technology as Yorkshire Ambulance Service, and so. Our primary goal and objective is to maintain that 99.99% availability um, uh, for all of our systems and all of our infrastructure. That said, um, you know, we are a fairly well advanced um, organization as far as um, as innovation uh, is concerned. We, we've got our own EPR, um, which we continue to um, to develop uh, as and when uh, required for the needs of the organisation, also for the needs of NHS England, etc. Um, but to be honest with you, when there's an incident that happens, uh, even in our data warehouse, as an example, if there's an incident that happens uh, on our operational stack, we we basically um, down tools on what we're doing from an innovation point of view and um, and, and start working to resolve that issue. Um, that does cause quite a lot of angst and concern amongst our uh, staff. I must admit they. They really don't like the uh, competing priorities and the uh, urgent needs on a tuesday afternoon when something happens as an ex- oh, it is tuesday afternoon we'll best be careful about that but the urgent <laughs> needs on a tuesday afternoon when, when one of our systems goes down and the fact that they have to say so basically down tools on that new sexy thing that they're developing and and they have to get to the grips with uh, just fixing the things that are, are, are uh, that have just gone wrong so it, it is a delicate balancing act um, as I said, I, I can't I can't reiterate enough about the fact that the FIAS, for, for our 111, our 999 service and our PTS service without that resilient technical infrastructure working properly, um, we just don't operate.
0: Thank you, Simon. Um, Lee, we'll come round to you next.
3: Thank you.
4: So I, I don't think the CIO is the important bit in that conversation. I think the bit in that conversation is how as part of the board, part of the management team, part of the organisation, how do you make sure that the organisation can still operate? You're only part of the piece, but how do we then link that to the organisation vision and value to understand where that sits? Now, whether you're a CIO or something else, you've got to sort of balance the, the cost against the benefits, against the risks. And to some degree, they're all the levers that would be used to say, actually, uh, you know, the, the example would be, I don't know, PCs are fine now. But if we don't plan on a, a rolling replacement program to replace PCs, laptops, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, we're going to we're going we're gonna to end up with some big problems because we're not going to be secure. But to the same degree, we need a vision of do we always want to be on premise or do we want to go to cloud? And then if we're going to go to the cloud, how we're we going to use AI? Because we've got to sweat some of the assets as well. So I suppose that, that's a very techie solution, a very techie view um, of the world. From, from a more simple view, it's it's a bit like in the 1900s. you know. Farriers, people who put shoes on horses, probably never thought there was a problem. They was booming, they had loads of business. How many of them farriers got their heads around cars were coming, and I need to do something else? And i think that's the key bit of putting it in that perspective that uh, how do you then convert that conversation or that example into if we don't have a vision if we don't have how we're going to use some of this technology in the future and uh, remove them uh, the longer term opportunities to balance workload against them current risks Uh, you know to be honest as digital leaders we're not doing our jobs so it's not an easy one and you're competing with all your other partners and, and I'm saying competing, what I should be saying is really complementing and working together to come up with the best outcome. But, you know, you've got to try and work on the, you know, uh, the, the the free horizons. Mode. We've got you've got to be looking at the long term as well as the short term and the medium term. Again, if you're only on the short term, you're a brilliant farrier, but there will be there'll only be one horse a year to assume. Uh, and that that's the real risk we probably uh, would sit on. So. Uh... Thank you, Lee. Um, Andy, we'll come
0: round to you next.
1: Lee, your analogies are always fabulous. <laughs> where do, where do we go from there? I mean, the opposite of the far is you know sort of the moonshot, isn't it? You know, how do you balance the basics with the beyond? Well, you know, if we hadn't uh, dared to try and get to the moon, uh, then you know we wouldn't have some of the technologies perhaps you know that that we have now. But I guess as a CIO, uh, <clears throat> you've got to balance that responsibility to the board and the colleagues that work in the organisations and and the patients to keep a really safe and secure set of systems that are being increasingly relied upon uh, and more and more every day as as we move uh, you know inexorably away from paper onto more digital systems so it's it's getting that um, level of digital maturity in place in the organization with the infrastructure and the solutions and the applications so that you can really have a firm footing to then move on towards you know making more use of information uh, making more use of of automation and and some of the, you know, the pinnacles around you know reality uh, augmentation and and virtual. But you, you know there are pockets of that great innovation and beyond thinking. But the, the, it's difficult to scale them and to really make use of them if you haven't got a stable infrastructure and an application layer underneath. Um, as 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 a leader, I guess you, know, you you try and balance your time between the transactional to keep a bit of rigor and rhythm going. And the transformation, or to to stretch people's minds, and to to have a vision in place, and to say, well, this is where we're going. Let's just try and get there in an orderly fashion. So yeah, uh, j- just just trying to have that that those basics of uh, of maturity in place, so that you can really launch yourself towards that that moonshot if you can.
0: Thank you very much, Andy. then Chris, round to you. Last but not least. <laughs>
2: um. So yeah, when I read this question, actually, I took a. It it spoke to me about staffing actually, and staffing specifically in IT and BI and all these departments. And if you read the question almost from a. If you read that question, went, How does a chief executive or a clinical leader do the same thing? I think what they'd say is, It's all about your staff. Um, And I think what they do that we have consistently not done very well in the NHS is that emphasis of professional development. Um, You can't be a nurse, you can't be a doctor unless you are regularly up to date. And that's where, and that creates both getting the basics right, but it also creates the time and the space for you to look at innovation and change. And I think that's one of the things that I would say that we don't do well enough is because we don't allow our staff to have that space. And and I'm not saying it's in every department, but often in IT departments, it is very much get your head down, get through your call queues, do this, do this, do this. Oh, and there's a project we want you to do over here. Um, yeah. and uh, you know that, and that leads to burnout and stress and all those kind of things. But I think the proper way to engage with staff is to emphasise their professional development so much more than we we have done in the past, um, and to get them and to take them on that journey that professional development journey, because then they'll understand and they'll be able to give us all the great ideas that they're going to have. Because, you know, we go back to we're four white blokes sat around. We're not going to have brilliant ideas about how to engage with young people. We're just really not. But my service desk bloke might and my service desk girl might. They might. Yeah, they might have some really great ideas and they might have some innovative ways of thinking. And my clinicians who were, you know, working on the improving access to psychological therapies, working in a GP practice, they might have some really brilliant ideas. And so it's just creating, as I say, that space for people to, it's not just digital people, it's actually our clinical colleagues, again, giving them the space to explore digital, all the evidence from the EPI usability survey about saying, well, actually, you know, it's not the system, it's the amount of support you give people it's getting them to but getting them out of the head of going that's an IT system so I don't really want to go on the course and going that's a clinical pathway system oh suddenly I'm interested suddenly I want to go on that so I think it's a real cultural thing I would say um, and about creating space for people to be creative
0: Thank you, Chris. Um, I think you finished that one off on really well there. I could see a lot of nodding heads then. Um, so yeah, I think it really resonated. Kind of following on from that question then, um, the next question again follows nicely. So question number four, I think we're on, um, was should a CIO be professionally qualified to carry out their role? Um, so Lee, I'm going to come round to you first on this one.
4: Super, thanks Emma. And you're right, it's really hard to follow that one, Chris. Uh, and yeah, uh... Yeah, it just shows um, you're absolutely right in that respect. So to answer the question, um, so I'd I'd probably answer the question by saying I don't expect the guy who comes to fit my gas boiler to not be Corgi approved. I don't expect to go and see a doctor that hasn't got their relevant qualifications. I'm probably not going to go to a cafe that hasn't done its basic hygiene skills training but we are in an industry where a CIO can come in and run a multi-million pound, if not billion pound, um, digital capability of a trust with absolutely zero qualifications whatsoever. So there's got to be something wrong in that respect. If, if as, as a profession, we want to have parity, be taken seriously, or cover the issues that Chris has suggested, of how do we start thinking of the workforce the people in development? then we've got to start by the CIOs being professionally qualified, in my view. The challenge of me is, what is the professional qualification? We need to be a CIO, because it's another one that there isn't a one-size-fits-all. First, personally, I'm a fellow of the BCS. I'm a Chimes CIO. I'm a FedIP IP lead practitioner. Which one? We're now into that. What does it mean? What doesn't it mean? And that, that's probably one of the challenges we have got of, of what is that accreditation, I would say. And although we're touching on CIO, I think that, that, as Chris has suggested, needs to ripple down to the rest of the workforce and staff. You know, you wouldn't expect a, um, you know, a, a nurse that's just come out of, uh, as a student nurse would have a level or, you know, a year one, year two doctor. They would have a level of understanding and and, and understand their qualifications, where they would sit, what's their competence capability. You know, we have the, um, we, we have a level of tools, but we don't necessarily apply them as much. And I'll just finish off with one further statement, and then I'll pass on to the next person. Within my trust, we're a BCS um, organisation. We're currently going through uh, getting the staff accredited, putting time aside. Um, I, I had some kickback from one of the members of staff recently on their uh, on their ITec um, submission because they basically, uh, from their point of view, they'd used their free hours to complete the form. When I turned around and said, that's three hours per week, not just three hours, it completely changed the conversation, especially around how that professional aspect is important. So my view is absolutely essential. The key bit is which one?
0: Thank you, Lee. Um, Andy, we'll come round to you next.
1: Ah, oh, following you, Lee. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you can't argue with that at all. I mean, the answer has got to be, you know, should there be professional qualifications and yes absolutely uh you know as you know any any self-respecting professional would you know would want to have continuing professional development you want to sharpen the saw uh yeah there's various ways of getting the qualifications i guess you know things like the corgi standard and, and others have, have 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 come together over time to be you know those, those sort of british standard or worldwide recognised standards so it's you know are we on a journey towards one of those BCS, Chine, FedIP, even Digital Academy, you know, becoming the recognised sort of standard uh, in the industry. Um, but I guess you know, if, if if people don't have those qualifications, can they still command the respect of their peers and colleagues uh, through experience or equivalent or you know, other other industries that perhaps haven't been you know uh, quite aligned to the sort of NHS CIO world? Uh, and, and, you know, it comes down to having some integrity and, and that level of sort of ability to be able to, to carry out the role. But uh, yeah, undeniably so. There should be uh, you know good qualified people acting as CIOs. And uh, yeah, hopefully that will increase over time.
0: Thank you, Andy. Um, Chris, what's your perspective on this one?
2: So uh, I think we you, all agree on this one, don't we? Um I think what's interesting to just note and give ourselves a bit of a breather on is we are a very young profession, Um, (laughs) unlike our doctoring accountancy colleagues um, who've been around for a while and kicked the towers on their profession uh, over hundreds of years, um, nurses as well. um, I think it it is a young profession and I would suggest that we need to be uh, kind of tolerant of each other, but also just, you know, a lot of it's about attitude. Yeah, a lot of this is about, yeah, um, I'd be surprised if you ever got a CIO on here who said, no, I don't want to be professionally qualified. Oh, because that would be like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and that would be more um, worrying, I think. Um, And but I do think that there's an element where we've just got to consider, you know, this, this, this stuff's been around 50, 70 years. It's not been around that long. So we've got to kind of, we will get there, but it's, going to take a while and that's why we've got as lees alluded to you know chime fed ip bcs um because none of it's really bedded in yet has it um so you know kind of roll riding the horses as as we're building it no you don't build a horse but if that makes sense
0: (laughs) thank you chris and then simon over you to you now to round this one up
3: well so i'm older than the rest of the gang on this call by a number of years, I think it's fair to say. And I did the first ever O-level and we had O-levels back in the day uh, at the age of 13 um, in um, in computing. And and we did things in hexadecimal and octal and in binary. In fact, I think I can still count in all of those. And we had a ticker tape machine in the library, which basically we used and we used sellotape to be able to fix things when you've got a coding error. So, you know, I if, if somebody said to me, what is the right qualification to be a CIO? Where do you start my experience? I mean, I used to be an Oracle DBA, um, you know, sort of 35 years ago when it was when it was Oracle five, I can't program. Um, I can't fix computers. Um, what I can do as a CIO is take that operational, and strategic management and leadership that is necessary at an organizational level. And I think that we should we should balance the qualifications that somebody has with the real life experience. Um, and within the NHS in particular, I think we, we we tend to like to grow our own from the very sort of, you know, from from coming in as a, as a as a junior analyst from the support desk up to being a CIO. But when I was growing up, I didn't I didn't even know what a CIO was. Um, so how, how you know, no nobody goes into the workforce today going, I'm going to be a CIO by the time I'm 35. OK. Um, You sort of fall into things basically through projects in the main um, and having the experience and the ability and the attitude to be able to do the work that is necessary. And as CIOs, we have to have a breadth of experience, not just a laser focused view on a particular aspect, because otherwise we're not well rounded enough to be able to do the work that we need to do. I think what Lee was saying, you know, I, I, I did the same course as Lee and I'm not quite sure if Andy was on that or not, but we did the did the CHIME CIO course and you know I think within the NHS we do need to have something in there which basically says it's not a tick box exercise but at least you know you've taken all that qualifications that you've got all that experience you've got and you've you've actually done that into something which is recognised within the industry as being something which is worthwhile and I think I'd probably stop at that you know you can go and do a master's degree in something you can go and do a master's degree in something else it doesn't really matter to be truthful. It's the ability um, to do the job, which is the, I think, is the core component of of being a successful CIO.
0: Thank you very much, Simon. Um, Okay, so we've got another kind of question, I think, that follows on quite nicely onto this one again. So, nice little three. Um, So, question number five, I think we're on, um, is what is the Yorkshire CIO's view of the national EPR convergence strategy? So, Andy, do you want to kick things off on this?
1: Oh, it's a very hot topic. This one, isn't it? Don't we love convergence as a word in the CIO land? Um, I, I think it, it, it is just a word at the moment. It's it's the latest word, and uh, you know there's obviously an, an intent behind that word, um, and it, it, you know that that intent has been something that you know flip flops uh, in in policy a little bit over the years. You know, do you do you, do you drive competition there for multiplicity and you know, uh, very many different uh, organisations and systems and try and integrate them uh, wherever you possibly can? Or do you switch that policy and try and, you know, have a have a rationalisation or a smaller uh, number of systems so that the integration challenge isn't as uh, burdensome? Um, wh- whichever you, you, your sort of politics and your view on it, at this point in time, I think it's an opportunity to push on with the collaboration efforts that are being, you know, been around for for a couple of years now at least. Um, you know, I, I know Lee's going to come on to use of uh, Yorkshire Care Record and Share Care Record, so I won't steal his thunder on that. But certainly, you know, it, if it makes sense to have a smaller number of systems around uh, electronic records in the health uh, and care system because it it drives an economy of scale or it makes better value for money or there's more standardization or there's less burden on the technology and the integration side then yeah I think that that's a good thing I think it's a shame when we get a little bit hung up on a particular word or phrase uh, and it takes us as, as a perhaps a professional a little while to sort of delve through that and understand right what what does this actually mean you know this is this is uh, you know, the latest policy and the latest word to use. Um, but I think for, for Yorkshire, you know, there's a lot of collaboration going on already uh, and and convergence of systems, you know, is is being planned through sensible conversations about what systems we need to support our uh, clinical and care professionals to do the job they, they need to do to care for our patients.
0: Thank you, Andy. Um, Chris, we'll come round to you next.
2: Yeah, so I think. Um... So much of this depends on context. So you know, I've worked, been lucky enough to work in lots of health economies and even now I'm split across two ICSs, so I'm part of Northeast and North Cumbria as well. Um and these are the things that make the difference in response to policy because it's the context of the local organisations and where they're at and what they're doing, when their contracts end, all of that kind of stuff that makes it work or not work as an idea. Um so I guess was, you know, and I'll reflect on my experience in the northeast and North Cumbria, where you've got a set of organisations who've got Hims level five. They're good to outstanding. What are they going to get out of EPR convergence? Not a huge amount. If you think about it, they should be sharing data, which they do with the Great Northern Care Record, but it's not going to be definitive for them. Um, I I think in Yorkshire, specifically from what I've seen of RICS uh, that we're talking about here, is that it's probably more helpful um, than actually a hindrance at the moment. Um, We've got a set of organisations who who want to get on that journey together. So actually it all works. Um, And I I think that that's a credit as Andy and and mean, who've been around a lot longer than I have. It's a credit to their collaborative purpose, actually, um, and and how they've managed to um, thread that particular needle. Not that it's completely threaded yet, but um, And so so generally, I think it's, um, you know, it it does depend on context, I would say as a mental health provider, um, I mean, as an ICS provider, I'd go, well, I'd like convergence on my shared care records, please, (laughs) because I'm split across two. (laughs) And actually, EPRs are one thing, but kind of shared care records would be nice. Um, But hey, um, let's just hope that the integration standards are there and then we can get information flowing to follow our patients and and help them because a convergent strategy is fine but if we don't deliver
3: benefits for patients
0: then what are we doing thank you chris simon round to you i could see you nod you had a little bit there
3: it's it's a challenge as they as they would say in yorkshire I, i wouldn't go there from here i'd go there from somewhere else to be honest um and you know we are You only have to go a couple of systems into an acute hospital, as an example, and you're already you're already fairly unique. Um, And that does that does create a a huge problem for inter-organisational integration of EPR information. Um, I'm not fond of having a one size fits all. We tried that through MPFIT. It didn't work. There was a lot of resistance to that. Which is why we've, we're in the uh, situation that we're currently in. Um, I am a huge advocate of the Yorkshire and Humber Care Record from my point of view for for Yaz in particular. Um, as I said, we we we're a as a, as a as a reactive, urgent, and emergency care uh, provider. As much data as we can possibly get about the patient who is in front of us, whether that's digitally through the through the telephone. Um, or is lying in the road somewhere or we go and visit within a house from a 999 point of view is massively important because if we can get the, the more information we can get about the patient and their recent healthcare journey helps us then or should help us then determine what we do with that patient and how we treat them. And one of our objectives as an example is to reduce the amount of conveyance we have to a hospital um and we can't really do that unless we understand the the, the patient journey and their social care journey and uh, and and every basically part of that 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 recent healthcare journey that the, that the patient has had um so so I, I think for me it's around data standards um it's around data sharing properly a lot of our suppliers unfortunately aren't in that space they when you say we, we want you to do, uh, we we want you to have some fire records. Let's well, say so that's really great, but we've got an extra module that will do that for you, that we can sell you for X hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, that is not where, that is not the place that we need to be. Um, and you know, we we we're only going to be as good as the data uh, that we have. Uh, it needs to be accurate. We need to be able to share it properly. We need to be able, we need to be able to get access to it from no matter where that patient has um, has landed uh, recently on their healthcare journey.
0: Thank you, Simon. And then Lee, round to you. Yes, thanks, Emma.
4: So, um, yeah, the political um, manfield that's EPR convergence. I I think the NHS England are actually going to write down what EPR convergence means uh, in in the next couple of months, which will be really handy because it is being thrown around. So I think if we we just rewind a little bit, what we really was talking about was levelling up because we've got a number of people that don't have EPRs. And there is a clear use case for having an EPR, as long as you'd managed to change aspects of that EPR well. Otherwise, you just recreate paper. And as much as everybody loves paper, if you just recreate the current processes, you're just stuffed. So, convergence as a strategy, already in the in in the ICS under the Act of the ICS, the need to try and standardise and use consistent technologies and ICS level was already in there. So the convergence piece, you know. But the issue is just how does that, where does it add value, the why bit? And I think that's the bit that's missing. So I think, Chris, you you made a really uh, clear statement around context. And I think the context of this, and I think this is where we're coming from, Andy, in our ICS, uh, and where it works for us that actually we're in a position where this can really move us forward. If we if we really go the right way and of how we're going to use this as a change agent, how we're going to use this to move us forward? How can we how can we streamline our processes? How can we share our resources our, our constrained resources? How can we make sure that information flows to the right person? How can we improve the experience for the staff that we employ that we need to retain? And how can we exp- improve that experience for the staff that the the patients that and the public that receive our services. You know, there's so many challenges in there. So from our point of view, I do actually think the power convergence statement is flawed because it doesn't really say the why. I think if you start looking at the context and the benefit that that really comes in, and that's where we was. I'm going to touch your to number care record since you loaded me on that one, Andy. It was exactly the right time the right uh, the, with the right partners, with the right contact for the Utshumber care record to land when we did that in 2018. And that was because it's very clear there was a need to do join that information up around emergency care. And the stuff that Sam and the team is doing in YAS is really initiative. It's really forward thinking. It's just the the, the only uh, ambulance trust that are doing that joined up real time messaging of ED to ambulance in the country. So let's not underplay that one, Simon. That's an excellent piece of work. But again, it's very orientated around the patient and improving care, not we're going to do some tech. So, you know, I'm, I'm not absolutely anti it. I think it's an opportunity. I think the key bit is it's everything to everybody. And I think that that's where we just need to be uh, get get a little bit more uh, focused. Because again, that's just vendor com- convergence, you could have data convergence, which is shared care records and other information. Standard convergence is essential. You know What's the way of solving the standards? Well, we've got 10 standards. Let's create a new overarching standard. We now have 11 standards. Uh, so, so it's that type of thing.
0: Thank you, Lee. Um, okay, we're on to the final couple of questions now. Um so question number six is how do we continue to create and develop deliver an environment that is attractive to technologists? So Chris, we're gonna come round to you first on this one.
2: Okay, so um luckily I went to a conference um, not so long ago and the Bupa, CIO from BUPA answered this question for us. Um, so um she'd done some research, I don't know how she'd done it, I don't know where it came from. Um But she said the younger generation looking for three things social value, radical flexibility, and a critical mask of expertise. So I think social value we've got nailed. (laughs) I don't think it's it's like brand awareness. I think we've got that one. We're okay there. Um, I think radical flexibility, so as a good quality employer, work-life balance you know I'd be happy if I was hiring someone if they said well I want to I mean I currently work a four day week long hours Um, that works for me that helps me keep sane Um, if a a youngster wanted to do that and go surfing off the northeast coast then absolutely fine why not Um, if they want to do that kind of lifestyle Um, I think one of the areas we sometimes fail is critical mass of expertise so if I was a cybersecurity apprentice. Um, I think our traditional approach would have been to go, oh, come into our organization, work with our infrastructure manager and they'll it'll be fine, um, which is probably not what they want. What they want to want is that kind of wraparound of lots of experts. Um, and I think, you know, in the past and, and where I'd like to get to is to have teams of people for these people to fit into so that they can be developed. I think there's also an element which is probably a bit of a challenge is increasingly of the opinion that we we need to be looking to retain people obviously, looking to recruit them but also I don't think younger generations are looking for jobs for life. I think they're looking for a few years, Um, I think we should be comfortable with that, I think we should be always on a continual process of uh, recruitment, we should be reaching out to uh, partners like uh, some of the social enterprises like CapsLock, who are a uh, 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 third party who effectively deliver uh, cyber security courses to anybody, 26 weeks, you go to them, BT, use them and you get loads of people to come and do cyber for you. Fantastic. That's the kind of stuff we need to do in collaboration as a health economy, I think, because that will really make a difference to people. Um, So, yeah, radical flexibility, social value, critical mass of expertise. That's the hard one. I think that's
0: the really hard one of those three that um,
2: we might struggle with.
0: Thanks for kicking that one off, Chris. Um, Simon, round to
3: you. I would agree with Chris. You have to have a sense of purpose, really, about what you're doing. As you know, we in the NHS, we 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 don't pay um, the amount of money that is available um, within uh, the private sector um, we have trouble attracting people to technology because again as i said earlier they they're, they're not necessarily using nhs jobs to find you know if you're a cyber security engineer as an example you don't think oh well and, and you're working in private sector you don't think oh i'll go and look on nhs jobs for ne- my next role you contact an agency um which is where half the problem comes with and some of the roles that we that, that we are trying to recruit to and everybody is trying to recruit to i think is um are, are very technical in nature they have to be uh, you have to come with experience um and we have to create the right message for people and it is about those those values of of, of working with people working with dedicated staff uh, and we have to put the patient at the center of it all and those social values i think are massively important we we used to get hung up about the fact that you know you used to have to come into work every day and you you had to you know live within a certain radius of the place where you were working particularly if you were on call etc um certainly i think that that there is a mentality change now that's gone on as a result of covid and the ability to work remotely that a lot of You know, we 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 shouldn't be hung up on that anymore. Uh, We should be able to recruit the best people using the organization uh, and the values of of the organization as as the main driver for recruitment. Um, And we should desperately, desperately, desperately try to retain the staff that we've already got. And rather than have conversations about why are you leaving? It's about what can I do to make you stay? Um, Because retention is retention is far easier than uh, recruiting new staff. Uh, given the uh, processes and governance that we have to go through internally within the NHS, um, I also think that we need to work more collaboratively, more collaboratively and closely with universities on a very regular basis, um, as a as a collective rather than individual organisations, to to try and do that um, that year in business, as an example, um, that that people on sandwich year courses do. Um, I was very successful when I was at Doncaster of of recruiting some people in there. They helped me create my EPR um, and they didn't know diddly squat about anything, to be honest with you, when they came into the organisation at the end of that year, they went away learning how to apply those skills that they would got internally within the organisation. And they they had products and services that they were integral to developing, which was a massive part of their portfolio as they went forward to complete their final year. Thank you,
0: Simon. Um, Lee, round to you. Thanks. So um, I think
4: Chris and Sa- and Simon have given some very good answers. So I'm just going to focus on one area, to be honest, which is to understand what's attractive to technologists, we need to actually engage and be in the middle of technologists. And, and that's not necessarily from the point of view of the people in the NHS that are already in the, the branded system. It's to understand them bright young things. Uh, un- understand SMEs or businesses, uh, and what's making them tick. And some of the points that have already been made are, are really valid, but again, there, there is there is that bit of actually speaking their language, understanding what what makes them work. So, for instance, my Yorkshire and Mercia record team are based in um, uh, the Centre for Digital Innovation in Hull. Uh, there's there's also one at North Allerton as well. We don't travel that far. God, that that that's like uh, in these days of COVID, we'd do that on a Teams meeting now, wouldn't we? Um, but the difference there is, I've based a digital team with our big range of digital vendors, SME. Effectively, it's a bit of a geeks gym for techies. But that gives a completely conversation when you talk to these people to get a view of how they tick and what's of interest. So the the suggestion that we can only recruit by NHS jobs. I don't use NHS jobs. I use other solutions. Stuff that if it don't work, then don't use it. Maybe my HR people are more sympathetic to that than uh, other HR departments. But uh, you know, the NHS is not seen as a big tech employer. Th- that that's an obvious one when you go and talk to some of these technology the the, the these people. Um, uh, what you might class as technology, and it's a very wide term as well. Uh, you know, are we talking data scientists or are we talking coder, or are we talking cyber experts? It's, it's, it's a really broad piece. So, uh, so yeah, my, my simple answer is just trying to get to understand and walk in their shoes. Have that beer with them on Friday. Albeit I can't have the beer because I'm part of the NHS and I'm employed on Friday, so it's just a coffee for me. But they all have a beer on a Friday afternoon.
0: Thank you, Lee. Um, Andy, we'll come round to you to finish this one off. Um, unfortunately, yeah, I don't think we'll have time to come round to the very last question. So over to
1: you. Oh, so I get the final word.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, that's great. <laughs> Thankfully, the other guys have uh, sort of ticked off everything I was pretty much going to say. But I think, you know, it, the, the days of technologists in, in you know health and care sort of being sat with the uh, technology in broom cupboards under leaking roofs uh, or disused wards or condemned buildings, you know, that isn't an environment that's going to attract them into uh, our organisations. You know, it's it, not only do we need to move the technology out of those situations where we can, but we also need to, pe- you know, to move the people out of those situations. And I think, as Chris said, you know, getting that flexibility radically. Of there still probably needs to be some kind of physical and on-site, uh, you know, I- environment for them to meet up. As as Leah said, you know, getting people in those sort of spaces, whether it's the Google um, uh, beanbags type of environment or whether it's uh, you know something modern in city centres, there's still a place for that. Um, but also that visit, you know that virtual environment as well, because many of them you know can do and often will you know work in a much more productive way from wherever they feel comfortable, uh, like a lot of us. But I think the other element just to, to talk about is around making sure we know what skills we need from technologists and at what level of organization. You know, there's a lot of skills that are perceived high cost. Uh, and I say that in comparison to you know sort of um, perceived value and, and and salary levels for uh, clinicians and care workers, uh, but the you know technology world commands uh, very high salaries in in many other industries, and so you know what skills can we uh, do we need at organisation level, uh, maybe at place or neighbourhood level to to sort of collaborate and then you know across geographies such as ICS, so that we make the best value for those high skills and those high high salaries that uh, those skills command.
0: Thank you very much, Andy. Well, I'd just like to say a massive thank you to everybody. Um, I really appreciate your time. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast um, and you've taken something away from today's discussion, um, hopefully as well as our future listeners. So yeah, just massive thank you.